a man called me to thank me for some advice I had given to him, which actually saved his marriage. Uh, I had shared with him that he and his wife uh, should do a date night. And he called and said, Pastor, uh, we took your advice, but even took it a step beyond. Uh, We now have two date nights. Uh, I go out on Tuesday night, and she goes out on Thursday night. (laughs) Well, I guess that's one way to uh, leave uh, your first love. Would you turn with me, uh, please? Uh, to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to take a look at a church that left, left her first love. Uh, turn with me, please, to uh, Revelation chapter 2. And as you're turning to Revelation chapter 2, please recall the outline of the book of Revelation. Uh, 119 gave us the threefold division where John is to write the things that he had seen. Revelation chapter 1, and now the things which are, that consists of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that were contemporaneous or present to John's day. Speaking of seven literal churches in Asia. We will begin uh, with the church of Ephesus, which by the way, uh, was in a strategic location. It was a great commercial city. It had the greatest harbor in Asia. Uh, Therefore, it had experienced great wealth. It was also a great political city, a free city, self-governing, that was exempt from having a station of Roman troops. It was also a great religious city. It housed the Temple of Diana, Uh, which was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. 420 feet long. Uh, That's longer than a football field. 220 feet wide, 60 feet high, with 120 columns, each 60 feet high. Uh, This location was the center of Ephesus immorality. They had Hundreds of temple prostitutes there. The criminals had a right of asylum at this location. Now, having given the background to Ephesus, let me read to you Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. 
would you join me in prayer, please? Father, I, I thank you that we are now embarking upon the second time zone that was contemporaneous to John. Lord, we look at these seven literal physical churches in Asia Minor that are typical of churches around the globe even today. And I ask that the Spirit of God that speaks to each of the churches would speak to our church today and to each individual that will subsequently hear this message. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin down in uh, verse 1 with the words, these things says. That expression occurs eight times uh, in the New Testament. Seven of those occurrences appear in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The other one is over in Acts chapter 21 in verse 11. These words were used by Persian, or if you will, Iranian kings to introduce a decree. So this is a royal statement that is being made here. And it says, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Jesus, uh, according to chapter 1 in verse 20, holds the seven stars. And the word here, hold, uh, from kriteo, means to hold firmly and securely. Uh, it occurs over in Acts chapter 3 uh, in verse 11. You recall the story. Peter and John go to the gate called Beautiful and see a beggar. And the beggar fixes his eyes upon Peter and John thinking he's going to get a handout. By the way, this man was born lame. Peter supernaturally heals the man, and he stands on his feet. Now listen carefully as I read to you Acts chapter 3 and verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on, that's her word there. And can you think about this for a moment? How do you think he gripped Peter and John? See, it says that he held on to Peter and John. And then all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. I'd say he embraced the apostles tightly. That's the idea of this word. Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars, the seven messengers, those that were going to bring, those that were going to take this message to their various churches. Uh, think about the concept of a moment of being called a star. What's the function of a star? Well, number one, it gives light. A star brightens the sky. It gives light. Well, isn't that what pastors are supposed to do? But stars also give direction. Uh, recall the wise men, the magi from Matthew chapter 2. And what do they say in Matthew 2, 2? We have seen the star in the east, the star that gave them direction to the Messiah. So Jesus is the one who is holding firmly these seven stars, these seven messengers, perhaps the seven pastors. Also goes on to say about Jesus who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Back in chapter 1 in verse 13, we see that Jesus was standing 
in the midst of the churches. Here now he is walking, and what is his function? He's judging the churches. He will now make an assessment on the church of Ephesus. And with that said, let me give you the first point. Jesus evaluates our church's spirituality. That's what the Lord Jesus does. He evaluates our church's spirituality. That's verses 1 through 4, and then also in verse 6. And let these words grasp your attention. I know your works. These exact words appear seven times in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 to each of the churches, these words appear. I know your works. There's an assessment. There's a judgment that is going on. And my friend, you were saved to serve God. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Jesus says, I know your works. Works. Not only does he know your works, he knows your labor. Wearisome effort is the idea of kapas here. It's laboring to the point of exhaustion, and the implication is even to perspiration. It's speaking of someone that is giving their all for the labor they are involved with. So Jesus knows their works. He knows their labor, but also their patience. Hupomene steadfast endurance as they are serving the Lord diligently and with everything they have, they are enduring the trials that are given to them. Jesus goes on to say, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Think about this church. Great assessment so far. Jesus knows your works, their labor, their patience, and they hate evil. This is what we are called to do. In Psalm 97, in verse 10, it says, You who love the Lord hate evil. Paul had predicted that this very church would have savage wolves come in to devour the flock. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 29, Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Jesus continues, that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. The church at Ephesus scrutinized the lives of those individuals claiming to be apostles and found them liars. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 expresses the ministry of the apostles. They had signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. This church is discerning enough to know that these individuals are fake. Who are they? Well, we might get an idea about who they are down in verse 6. Come down with me, please. Chapter 2. Verse 6, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, historically, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. 
but they are an aberrant group. They are a group that are not pleasing to the Lord and the church of Ephesus has enough discernment to catch that they are not authentic. The term Nicolaitans comes from the words Nikao, to overcome, and Laas, which is people, to overcome the people. So, Jesus, appraising this church, notices their works, their labor, their patience, and their ability to discern, and he praises them for this. Notice in verse 3 now in Revelation 2. And you have persevered and have patience. They pressed on in the midst of adversity and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. They were not weary in well-doing. Doesn't this sound like the church you want to join? (laughs) When you listen to, to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who is highly praising this church. Don't you go, oh, I wish I could sign up for that kind of church. But now I draw your attention to verse four. And the very first word is an adversative. It's a contrast. Translated here, nevertheless. Jesus says, nevertheless, I have this against you. There is a strong contrast between verses 1 through 3 and now verse 4. And observe these words that you have left. Notice it doesn't say lost. There is a point of departure that you have left your first love. Now we're going to have to do a little bit of detective work here. You want to try to say, okay, why did they depart from their first love? What is it that moved them away from their Messiah and from their first love? Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1 so we can do this history on the church at Ephesus. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, This dates to about A.D. 60. And I want you to observe carefully the words of Paul as he writes, 115, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. The words, your love for all the saints, should tell us something significant. That these individuals love God wholeheartedly. How do we know this? Well, the two great commandments. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But number two, you love your neighbor as yourself. How do we know if we're loving God wholeheartedly? It is manifested by caring for our neighbor. In around AD 60, this church had a love for all the saints, which shows that they loved their God wholeheartedly. Now let's bring forward just a few years to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to start to see a change that happens in this congregation. Paul writes to Timothy who is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And the words in verses 6 through 10 indicate 
that there is a departure that is taking place in the hearts of the saints. Verse 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Why is he saying this? Well, it seems like they have lost being content. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. I believe this church has lost the spirit of contentment. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and in many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition and observe verse 10, which I think just sums this all up, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. They were in the process of replacing the true God with the God of materialism. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now for the clincher, a passage you're familiar with. 1 John chapter 2. We now spring forward about three decades. 1 John chapter 2. Two. It's hard to know exactly when John wrote this, but probably in the 80s, almost to 80, 90, so two, three decades have elapsed. And there's a command that begins our section of Scripture in verse 15. Do not love the world. The present imperative is a command that shows that they need to stop loving the world. You see where their hearts have gone? Or to things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, you cannot serve two masters. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And now as you're in First John, let's look at the very last verse of the book. First John chapter 5, verse 21, and ask yourself this question, why does John pen these words? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It seems that the church is now romancing the material girl. <laughs> they have moved away from a wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ as having a preeminence in all things and have allowed the God of materialism to sit on the throne of their hearts. And it's so clear from Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, no one can serve to masters so as you're coming back with me to revelation chapter 2 let's review point number one jesus evaluates our church's spirituality and here's the command see based upon the information we were just given second point restore christ as your first love restore christ as your first love. There are three commands 
imperatives and a negative promise given to us in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. See the word remember? That's a command. They need to correct their departure. They need to remember from where they had been to where they're at, and they need to get back there. And that's why we have our second word, repent. Repent means to change your thinking. Confess your point of departure to God. And when you and I allow anyone or anything to take priority in our life other than the true God, we have fallen into the trap of idolatry. And we need to remember where we were and then we need to repent. And our third command here, the word do. What do we need to do? Do the first works. See, these Christians are to go back and demonstrate their love for God by caring for the brethren. Take a moment with me. Go back to 1 John. This time, chapter 3. 1 John, chapter 3. And look at verses 16 through 18. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love. Here comes the test. Because he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for whom? The brethren. Notice here, we go from the plural brethren. See, because sometimes we can talk about loving everyone. Let's get specific. Observe the singular in verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother, see a singular, brother in need, and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And the answer is it doesn't. Verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This church needed to remember their point of departure, repent, change their mind, get themselves right with God again, and go back to their former or first works. That is so, so very important. And then the negative promise given here at the end of verse 5 in Revelation 2, or else I will come. The idea is that he would come in judgment that if they would not repent, that the Lord Jesus himself would act upon their church. That's a scary thought. They needed to get things right before it was too late. The Lord is the one who opens the door of your church, but he can shut it down as quickly. So point number one, Jesus evaluates our churches spirituality number two restore christ as your first love and now number three faithfully serve god for future blessing that is now verse seven and we're going to see a statement that is given to each of the seven churches he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches what applies to one church 
equally applies to every church. That's what we have here. This is an important concept for us to learn. And then Jesus speaks here about the overcomer. To him who overcomes. And you have to ask the question, what does it mean to be an overcomer? Who is an overcomer? Is it just some believers and all believers? Well, 1 John gives us the answer to that. We keep going back, but it's where we get our answer, so let's go there. 1 John chapter 5. I love when Scripture answers Scripture. 1 John chapter 5, 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Whatever here is neuter. The idea is because of their salvation. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory, the Nikkei. We get the famous name Nike from this word. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? Who's an overcomer? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So John informs us that all true believers are overcomers. Now what's the promise given back here in Revelation chapter 2 verse 7? To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. One day Adam was walking by the Garden of Eden with his sons. The sons asked about the garden and Adam said, Boys, that's where your mom ate us out of house and home. (laughs) Adam and Eve were barred from the Garden of Eden because they sinned. Why did God do that? Why did God put them immediately out of paradise and out of the Garden of Eden? See, he did not want them to eat of the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden. Why? Lest they should be in that fallen condition forever. It was an act of God's mercy to put them out. And that's exactly what he did. Yet according to Revelation 22 in verse 2, believers will partake of the tree of life. Isn't that exciting? So where is this um, tree of life? Where is it now according to the scripture? Because notice it says, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The word for paradise, the Greek term, Uh, occurs only three times in the New Testament. It occurs here in Revelation 2-7. Also, and, and you recognize the reference, Luke 23, 43, where Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me where? Paradise. But then we really find out how this word is used from 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, and I think we should turn there to see exactly how the term is used in the New Testament that gives us a location. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes 2 Corinthians to defend his apostolic authority. And he tells a story about a man, I believe referring to himself, that had a heavenly experience. Verse 3, 2 Corinthians 12. And I know such a man, 
Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up but where? Into paradise and heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. So he was caught up to paradise. Where is paradise? Go, I'll go back for a second. Verse 2, same chapter. 2 Corinthians 12, 2. I'm, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such one was caught up to the third heaven. The Greeks thought in terms of a third heaven. Clouds would be the first heaven. The second would be like the sun, moon, and stars. And then the third heaven is heaven proper. So in other words, paradise is heaven. So the overcomer that is going to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, is really promised to enjoy the blessings of the new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever. So let's take a moment before I give us our applications or our employment ideas. Jesus evaluates our church's spirituality. Restore Christ as your first love and then faithfully serve God for future blessing. Uh, Jesus, as judge, cares deeply about how we handle our finances. He cares greatly about how we are stewards of all that he has entrusted to us. And he never wants us to allow those things that we possess to be worshipped. One of the things we see about the nation of Israel is that God never wanted them to be in debt. Uh, listen carefully to Deuteronomy 28 in verse 12. This is what Moses pens. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. An interesting concept. God was going to take care of the nation if they kept him as a priority where they would always have all they need and would never need to borrow. But then listen to Deuteronomy 28 and 43 and 44. The alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. When was that to occur? If the nation of Israel turned away from the true God, he would remove their financial blessing from them debt shows that we are indebted to another and god wants to be our sole provider but when we get our priorities wrong god chastens us in that what does jesus uh think about individuals with excessive debt well let me take you first of all to proverbs because in proverbs 13 22 it says this a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. In other words, the godly individual is one that God has taken care of financially, and that person can pass down to not only his children, but to his grandchildren the blessings that he himself has received. This is the nature of what God wants to do for his children. It's a normal state of affairs when you walk with the Almighty. Uh, Paul 
who cared greatly for the saints, pens these words in 2 Corinthians 12, 14. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. The Corinthians needed to understand that Paul was caring for them spiritually and that they needed to receive what he was sharing with them. But he draws upon a general principle in life. That is the children who receive from the parents and not the other way around. And there is a danger, and I I want you all to think about this, and you'll see where I'm going to tie this all together in just a bit. Buying beyond our means and leaving excessive debt for our children and grandchildren is immoral. It's not what God desires. He has set up a structure. We call it giving to the local church. Really, you're giving to God through the local church. And when we have our priorities in order, he blesses us. But when we rob God, and we accumulate debt because we want to have the things of this world and live beyond our means, it's clear that materialism is what really sits on the throne of our hearts. So God desires us to break that early on when we become Christians. How does he do this? Through regular giving. To take a portion of your income and honor God with it to show that God is the priority of our money And that it's not that we have it all for ourselves. Regular and generous giving to the church is God's way for us not to become materialists. 1 Corinthians 16, think about verse 2. Paul writes to that church on the first day of the week, see that's Sunday, let each one of you, did you hear those words? Each one of you. Lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. The church met on Sunday. So when the individual gets paid, he was to take a portion of that income and then give it to the work of the Lord. That was very important. And it's to each one of you. There are no exceptions. Why? Because God has never desired money to be our master. Actually, he reveals our heart by exposing our financial practices. Isn't that what he did with the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler says he loved God and that he kept all the commandments. And see, Jesus knew he had violated the first commandment, that he had another God above the true God. Jesus knew that he had violated the 10th commandment. He had covetousness as a way of life. So Jesus says, hey, no problem. Just sell, uh, uh, sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. But what happened with the man? He walked away because he had great possessions. As Michael Card would say, his money can be more than his soul. Now, come over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Over to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. When you want to learn about giving and how not to be a materialist, you need to study two chapters, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. Now over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let's look at verses 1 through 3. Moreover, brethren, 
we make known to you the grace of God, the favor of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Although this, this group of people knew poverty, yet they gave generously. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Now, chapter 9. Flip the page. Come down to verses 6 and 7. But this I say. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. In other words, if you just throw out a little bit of seed, you're not going to have a great harvest. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one. Does that sound familiar to you? That was 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We are individually to set aside what God has blessed us with and give it to the Lord's work. There's no exceptions. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. I think it's essential that each one of us takes a good look at his and her heart and ask this honest question. Who is sitting on the throne of my heart? To the church at Ephesus, it seemed like they had all things going great guns. They seem to have been a church that was discerning, that labored for the Lord. They had persevered. And yet when you got to chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, nevertheless. Why? They had walked away from their first love. They had created a new first love. You have to honestly ask yourself, have I allowed the God of materialism to sit on the throne of my heart. And how do you know if that's the case? Well, one of the ways you can tell is what you do with your pocketbook. Is the Lord Jesus Christ having the preeminence, number one, in every area of your life? Are you an individual that when you get your paycheck, you take that first portion and set it aside for the Lord's work? Going back prior to the law in Genesis chapter 14, when God blessed Abram, later renamed Abraham, Abram gave a tenth of all that he had. We call it a tithe. One of the ways we can see if God is the priority in our life is what we do with our money. And I'd encourage all of you to make sure individually you honor God first. Make sure that you're not allowing the God of materialism to rule your life. Do not live beyond your means. Lay up treasures in heaven by giving to the work of the Lord regularly and systematically and make sure that this money is not something that controls you, but that you use it for the glory of God. So if you have walked away from the Lord in your heart. You might be still coming to church, going to Bible study, 
But if you have left, there's a point of departure because materialism is now on the throne of your heart. Number one, confess your sin to God. Just tell him. He already knows what it is. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then I would encourage you to set up a budget whereby God is honored first and foremost in your life. And parents, I'd encourage you to teach your children the same thing. Teach them early in life to honor God first. Let's make sure that we have not departed from the true God for that which is fleeting, that which is temporal. Let's repent and go back and do our first works. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wisdom and discernment that the Lord Jesus Christ has. And Father, as he evaluated the church at Ephesus, similarly today, he's evaluating our church. He's looking into our hearts individually. And I know he's not pleased whenever the God of materialism has replaced him. I ask, Father, for all that have departed, that have walked away from having you be the Lord of their life, that they would repent and go back and do their former works, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.